0: She's all that. This is the She's All That video Podcast. Conversations with women doing awesome shit. I'm your host, September Smith. And in this season, it's all about the transformation that women are making in the aftermath of the midlife bomb, as I call it. Those unforeseen events. Illness, loss, a career termination, a battle, an awakening, a transformation. Events that are lobbed into our lives like a grenade detonating the life that we've been living for decades and making it impossible to ever go back. When this happens, we are left to dust ourselves off, figure it out, and find our own way forward. While the lens of popular culture is often on the tragedy and the trauma and the injury and damage that it inflicts, I want to celebrate women who were only made stronger by what they experienced. We need to hear those stories to know that building that new life, that new incarnation, from the pieces of what was, is not just possible, It may be the best thing you'll ever do. She's all that. Hi, and welcome to the She's All That video podcast, season three. And in season three, I'm talking to women who have come from one incarnation in their life and somewhere along the way, midlife, they've had a complete change and they are now doing something amazingly impactful and different. And today I'm speaking with Teresa Fitzgibbon. She's joining me here today to talk about her transformative life change. Welcome. Welcome. Nice to have you here, Teresa.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: What I wanted to talk to you about was your transition. You had been in the finance industry, working in banking on two continents, high power job, and that is not what you're doing right now. And we're going to get into that, but I would like to know what was it that you were doing in that first incarnation, that Teresa Fitzgibbon career 1.0?
1: I was, I spent about 22 years in banking. So I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work in Dublin, London, and New York. And I um, did a variety of different roles, but predominantly sales. So both as an individual contributor, and then later in my life in New York as a, a head of a global sales team. So as you can imagine, pretty high pressured, long hours, a lot of travel. Um, I don't think anybody warned me moving to the US quite how much travel, but also I, you forget sometimes the distance you have to cover, right? In London, it's, it's an hour flight to Dublin or to Zurich or to Paris versus, uh, you know, four or five hours to get from New York to the West Coast potentially. But uh, that, was, that was my previous life, as I like to call it.
0: So whether people have heard of it or not, uh, the situation of the number of women in finance, in banking,
1: Mm -hmm. are we in a situation where it's pretty much 50-50 now? Uh, Nowhere close, unfortunately. Um, You know, if if you look at, you know, all the banks have slightly different titles, but if you look at up to sort of what we would call in banking industry VP level, it's pretty much 50-50 men and women. So that tends to be somewhere between five and 10 years into your career, you know, grad student, Etc. tends to be fairly representation. Um, However, once you move up to the next two grades, which are really director and the managing director, that's where the numbers start to fall off quite significantly. And, you know, it varies by bank, but on average, at director grade, you're sort of talking more somewhere between 60, 40 slash 70, 30 men and women. Um, And then by the time you get up to the managing director level, it's more like 80, 20. You know, maybe some parts of the organization might have slightly higher statistics or higher representation of women, but it definitely is on the low side. And not only is it on the low side of gender, it's also on, on the low side of what I would call intersection uh, gender. So, uh, very much weighted heavily to white women uh, who are represented, and unless some of the minorities, and, you know, less representation from mothers. Uh, a lot more single women or childless women in those more senior roles as well.
0: Uh, Does that bear out on the male side? Like once you're a father, you don't tend to be promoted?
1: (laughs) No, it it does not at all. Um, You know, in in my experience, and obviously this is is through my lens and my own experience, I predominantly worked with men um, who once they got to the very senior roles, a lot had stay-at-home wives. So they had that sort of flexibility to come into work and not really be thinking about uh, the children at home or who was doing pickup or who was doing childcare or where dinner was coming from or the dry cleaners, et cetera. Whereas most of the women I worked with were uh, two, two income households. So they were obviously working on splitting that with their partner. There was less, there was some, but less senior women in senior leadership roles with stay at home partners.
0: Oh, yeah. When you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh, so is it the kind of career that one needs their own team at home to do take care of everything? Because it's so demanding. You need every waking hour to put into this kind of career.
1: Um, in theory, yes. Uh, you know, listen, it's it's not a nine to five job, uh, especially if you're in one of those more senior roles. And, you know, even if it's an eight to six job, there is. Obviously, it's not a six o'clock and go home and don't turn on the computer till tomorrow morning type job either. There's also a lot of travel, depending on which part of the organization you sit in. Obviously, with me being in sales, you have to go see clients, you go to where the clients are. So there's a lot of time away from home. Um, You know, my first year in New York, I was probably on a plane personally and professionally, maybe 48 out of 52 weeks that year. It was insane. And, you know. To do that as as a mom or as a dad who doesn't have a stay-at-home partner becomes very, very difficult to manage, even just the logistics of that, never mind any emotional or mental energy, just the actual logistics.
0: So the question occurs to me, um, over the last 20 months, there has been a curtailment of our ability to do that sort of thing. So has the financial industry crashed? Like people can't be on planes 48 weeks out of 52. So have they learned a new way of doing it?
1: I think they have. Um, you know, I think this was a real reckoning in the industry. Of listen, nothing will ever replace, I think, face to face building personal relationships. But mm-hmm. did we need to be on a plane or physically in front of clients as much as we used to be? Clearly, as you said, the industry hasn't come to a standstill. There's still still revenue being earned. There's still deals being made every day. People have definitely got much more um, open to connecting on Zoom. Um, You know, when I was still in banking pre-COVID, that was really, really difficult. There was a lot of firewall issues, right? As in, you know, between corporates and the banks, we don't want to necessarily um, allow you behind our firewall or vice versa. There was a lot more concerns, I think, about the security of Zoom. Some of those have gone away over time. Um, But there's, you know, there's such a a variety, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Microsoft Teams, whether it's uh, WebEx, I think every organization has sort of found their feet a little bit more on, on moving away from the need to be in the office or, or physically in front of clients all the time.
0: So that might actually help the situation somewhat, but more about you. So mm-hmm. that is what you were doing. Yeah. You were, and I mean, you were climbing the corporate ladder. You were yep. really m- making strides in the world of finance. Yeah. Obviously that you were recognized and sent to to America to be doing this. So What happened? What was the event or, I don't know, the series of events that was a pivot point for you? And was it a pivot point or was it more drawn
1: out? For me, it was quite a drawn out pivot point, I think. Um, So if I go back to 2013, which tells you how long of a a drawn out process this was, I was living in London and uh, career wise was going great, but I felt in a, a bit of a personal rush. I felt like all my time and attention was going to work. And sort of the leftover bits at the end of the day went to everything else, whether that was my own health and wellness, whether it was my family, whether it was more social activities. So I got this opportunity to move to New York at the end of the year and end of 2013. And I thought, this is fabulous. I'm going to go to New York and totally change everything. And got to New York and I got about a year in and I realized I basically replicated my London life in a different geography. And I, I really had this aha moment, I suppose, of, why did I believe that being the person I am just by changing geographies, I would change the way I behaved. So I really had that aha moment of, you know, everything in between my ears, the way I think, the way I talk to people, the way I prioritize my life remained the exact same. I'm just now doing it, you know, three and a half thousand miles away. So that actually led me on a journey of getting a life coach myself. I felt I needed somebody external to my industry to help Sort of get me me through all of these thoughts that were going through my head. Why, why was I living my life this way? Was it the way I wanted to live my life? What changes did I want to make? And thankfully, somebody to hold me accountable to make some of those changes, right? Because it's very easy to say, I want to do it. But you know, we all sort of revert to our old habits, our old behaviors, our old routines. And um, so most of 2015, I, I worked with that coach and I had phenomenal results. And I've always been fascinated with the psychology of, you know, why are some of us glass half full and glass half empty? Why do some people achieve every goal they ever set and others don't? And that made me decide I was going to off, go off and actually train to be a coach myself in 2016. And I had what zero departure. <laughs> yeah, what but I you know departure. have from what you becoming doing? a coach? <laughs> no intention. Yeah. I did this part time while still holding down my full time job. I just enjoyed it, uh, but. Honestly, if you'd asked me back in 2016, there is no way I would have predicted the future and said I would end up coaching. Um, 2017, I, I qualified and I was doing some coaching, I would say, on the side. And I just sort of hit that pivot point in about 2018 where I was like, oh, I'm enjoying coaching more than I'm enjoying the day job. And, and I hadn't got to that tipping point before then. It was, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to say never hated my job. I never hated my industry. I never hated the people I work with. So I think because of that, it was a very fluid, ongoing, you know, my subconscious working behind the scenes, changing my priorities. And it took my conscious mind a couple of years to catch up and realize that, you know, in my 20s and 30s, my career was my number one priority. And I I lived my life that way. But somewhere in my early to mid 30s, my priorities started to change and my family became even more important. Health and wellness became more important. Nature and being outdoors And here was I living a life that was totally unaligned to those values. Um, You know, family was my number one priority. I was three and a half thousand miles away from my entire family who were based in Ireland. If nature was important to me, I was living three blocks from Macy's. So you can imagine how much nature was in my day to day life. Uh, Health and wellness. Yeah, I, I always tried to prioritize it, but it sort of got forced into whatever slots were available during the day. And that for me was I suppose that that pivot point of, okay, something dramatic has got to change if I want to live the life that I keep telling myself and other people I want to live. I'm not going to be able to, you know, it's that old saying, right? Trying to put a a square peg in a round hole. The lifestyle I had was, I couldn't just adapt it slightly. I had to, in theory, I call it blow it up to create something totally brand new.
0: That must've been terrifying.
1: It was, but you know, what was interesting is, I continue to have coaches through all of this period of time, people who helped me process. And I remember sitting down with one of my coaches in Midtown Manhattan in 2018 in the summer and saying to her, I said, I want your life. I want your lifestyle. And she was like, well, why can't you? And I I kept coming up with reasons. Now, in my head, they were very rational reasons. To her, they were just excuses. They were a manifestation of the fear I had. So I would say to her things like, well, I'd never afford to live in Midtown Manhattan, you know, if I was a coach. And she would throw back at me, well, do you have to live in Midtown Manhattan? And I was like, oh, I suppose not. That's because of my job that I currently live there. And she was like, "Or I was like, oh, I can never make the same money. And she's like, but do you have to make the same money if you don't live in Midtown Manhattan? Or what belief system do you have that says you can't make the same money as a coach? Let's start breaking down that. So having those sort of outside forces. Um, challenging me and sort of giving me answers back to what she would call my excuses really helped me shift some of that mindset and some of the limiting beliefs I had around the life I pictured versus the life I wanted. And I thought the one I pictured, which was sitting in banking was the only one that gave me what I needed in life. And, and she helped me dispel some of that, uh, that, that belief system.
0: So, so what, what it is, as, as, as we briefly touch on here, what you're doing now is is working with women in finance and banking. Um, So just in case anybody's thinking, yeah, well, okay, that's pretty niche. And it's, it's not that important. It's just specifically for women who are interested in being in finance. um, There's what's at stake for those women if they don't have guidance and mentorship and someone to help them chart their course through this. But societally for all of us, The population as a whole, there's there's an importance in getting a little bit of, um, how about a lot of diversity and more of an equal distribution of individuals in this industry. Why is that so important?
1: So, listen, let's take a little bit of a step back. If we think about um, the women I used to work with, and I've worked with some amazing, phenomenal, hardworking, technically skilled, fabulous women. And I've seen so many of them not get the recognition that they believe they deserve. So when somebody comes to me, and by the way, yes, I niche into to finance because that's my background, but I also work with lawyers and, and women in, in basically high pressure corporate type roles. Generally, when they come to me, they're, they're banging their head against a brick wall is what I would call it. And listen, I've been there in my career. You get to a certain point and it's like, I'm working so hard and I'm doing all this extracurricular. I'm on this committee and that part but I'm not getting whether it's promotions or pay or recognition. So they often use words like, I feel stuck. I've lost my mojo. Um, I'm feeling underappreciated, undervalued, you know, unfulfilled, lacking purpose. Those are all the the sort of emotions I think that come with it. And often it's about learning that, you know, what takes to get you to a certain point in your career, that 10 or 15 years into your career is not necessarily what takes to get you to the more senior roles, right? This, these junior roles is all about working really hard and a strong work ethic and meeting deadlines and being a great team player. Once you want to get further in your career, it's about leadership. And being the hardest worker on your team does not mean you're equated to being seen as a future leader of an organization. And I think you know, whether it's through natural mentorship and sponsorship, I think men are guided on that journey more naturally in an organization. Because if I look up and and the role I want is 70% men and 30% women, there's 70% men who can guide me on that journey as a man. The 30% women, it's a smaller cohort that I have to go to. And often what we do is we give advice through the lens of our own experience. This worked for me, so you go do this. it's like, hold up, what worked for me will not necessarily work for you. How do you find your authentic voice and your authentic way of navigating those politics? Because maybe I did it this way, but X worked for me, Y might work for you. So it's about brainstorming that type of stuff. Um, But on a whole scale, and I know we talked about this before, for me, I want to create a world where I don't need a job. I work myself out of a job, right? Because... I think if we can change societal conditioning for young girls as they start their path in life, we will end up with young women and and older women who don't need my services because there is a society that we live in that values women as highly as it values men, that it values the traits and men and women, right? Gender intelligence shows we innately are different. That doesn't mean one is good and one is bad. It doesn't mean I'm saying women are better than men. But we want a society that basically appreciates the values we both bring to the table. And all of the research shows, whether it's, you know, based on employee satisfaction, whether it's based on your revenues, your numbers, the more diverse voices you have at the table, the better the results as a company are.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that's who, been who doesn't want out. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. but
1: you know this is where unconscious bias plays in and often when i say unconscious bias people immediately think oh you know she's off about how men have unconscious bias on women and, and that's not my message my message is every single one of us has unconscious biases that's We're the whole point they're all in the same society <laughs> 100% and my as a woman i can have unconscious biases against other women think of how many times have you heard in the last couple of years oh millennials That's an unconscious bias. It's actually a conscious bias if you actually pay attention to it or ageism or sexism or race or religion or sexual orientation. They're all in that mix. But what we need to be doing is bringing awareness to that and going, listen, and, and I've been a victim of that, by the way, I ended up with a team that was predominantly women. So I now look back and go, oh, where did my unconscious biases play in that? I built a team of women similar to me because one of our unconscious biases is is likeness. It's easier to work with people who look, behave, act, have similar backgrounds to us. It Mm -hmm. takes a bit more of a challenge to have a team that's diverse because we don't immediately just get each other. We don't immediately have the same upbringings or conditionings or or skills. It takes a little bit more work, but what you get in return for that makes that work. So, so worth it.
0: Yeah, I can see that from the point of view of, say, someone, a leader who's putting together the team. It's like, oh, I don't know how they're going to react, and I don't, and I don't. They always see it this way. It's just going to be so much easier. We'll get everything done so much more timely if I just have my my usual team there. But then right. you just get the same results that you've always had, and nothing changes.
1: And because the results aren't bad per se, and yeah. and it's hard to quantify what you're not getting, you mm-hmm. don't realize. What you're leaving on the table by not and, having that diversity and
0: the success of last year or five years or ten years ago to you that's success so if you keep get, replicating that that's success great. Yeah. but on a wider scale societally globally i mean some someone might think well then why if it's so tough why don't women just stay out of finance i mean what role does the financial industry does the banking industry that just sounds so naive to even be asking that. What role yeah. does they, do they play on a larger stage that makes it so important that we have more equitable, diverse yeah. employees and listen, in, in banking?
1: We could, I could talk about this all day. So I'll hit the point points, but suffice to say that, you know, right now in Europe, we have um, the Climate Action Group going on. Right. So we've got COP meeting this week. Yeah. I can tell you that every bank has representation sitting at that that event this week. So if you think of Davos and who attends Davos, which is, you know, all of the global leaders, it's also all the CEOs of the big global banks. And listen, I am sure there's people listening to this call. You know, if we think of 2008 and we think of the financial crisis back then, if we think about more recent crises, um, there is responsibility on the banks, right? I mean, clearly especially in 2008, right, a lot of the activity um, was, and I know there's many that feel the banks didn't get held accountable or or pay the price for the work that they did. However, that doesn't change that you've got a bunch of individual people within the bank who are working really, really hard and who have great ethics and great morals, right? You can't just lump finance into this big and go, finance is terrible. Now,
0: will diversity help address that?
1: I I think partly because if you are realistic about what are considered masculine leadership traits and feminine leadership traits. Now, when I say masculine, that doesn't mean they're all held by men or by women and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But masculine leadership traits are considered things like um, very decisive, risk taking. When you look at more feminine leadership traits, it tends to be more empathetic, more humble, but it also tends to be less risk taking. So I think the more voices you have at that table, and of course, I'm going masculine, feminine, there's non-binary, there's every version under there. So I don't want to exclude anybody. The more voices you have at the table, if I've got one person advocating for risk and I've one person advocating to not take the risk. At least the conversation becomes much more nuanced, much more detailed than just one person going, "Let's do it." Right? The return of the risk is is worthwhile, um, and I think everything in life is is a risk reward return. Right? You know, COVID I think has been a prime example of that. Here's what my risk is. Here's what my reward is. Am I willing to take that risk? And and let's be honest, the answer today might be different tomorrow and the next day, but. Getting more women, more diversity across just not just gender, but all the other the, the other sort of minority life
0: experiences, perspectives,
1: life experience and perspective. And if you think of, of women today globally, because we're talking about the societal conditioning, right? Think of young girls. They're being told generally their messages is, is be convenient, you know don't be too loud if you can stay in your box and um, just just keep your head down and work hard life will play out for you you'll get your just rewards and then all of a sudden we put them into a work environment and we're like oh you're not confident enough oh you're not outspoken enough oh we don't hear your voice and it's like well you just spent the first 10 20 years of my childhood telling me not to be those things and now you expect me to undo 20 years of conditioning to morph into this brand new person. And and that's what I meant earlier when I said, if we can change the conditioning of our young girls, I won't have a job. And -hmm. I would very happily retire if I knew it was because we have now conditioned these young girls to be themselves, have their voice heard, be bossy, be leaders, be go-getters, be aggressive, if that's the word you want to use. But isn't it funny,
0: we use the word bossy. Have you ever heard anybody call a boy bossy?
1: Of course not, of course (laughs) not. And listen, I I shared with you, you know, I became an aunt for the first time during lockdown. So I don't have children. This is my first experience of what I call parenting as an aunt. And I've had this conversation with my sisters because we realized uh, my niece is very curious. We were using the word nosy. And we all had to stop and have a conversation and say, she's inquisitive. She's curious because if she was a boy, we wouldn't be calling her nosy. It's a very female type girl. Or we'll say, oh, somebody knows her mind. Isn't that a great thing? Whereas I think 30, 40, 50 years ago, she knows her mind was like, well, no, no, no. You just conform to what we tell you to conform to. Now, what will be interesting is when she goes to school. Right. Let's be honest. If I'm a teacher and I have 30 kids in a classroom, I have to manage them through convenience because I have 30. Mm -hmm. But what does that do? You know, boys, we say boys are just boys. Boys will be boys. Mm -hmm. They're boisterous. They're loud but we expect a totally different behavior from our, well, our younger
0: kind of hope for that convenience of at least 50% of the class being more malleable and manageable, yep. which is but, yeah, a detriment to the development of the girls.
1: And you know, how many times have you heard things like, Oh, we give allowances for boys. They mature slower, you know, they're there. And they do right. That is, is proven um, biology in their brain, yes. but we never say to boys, actually, you should aspire to be the girls who've matured quicker than you. You should look to emulate their behavior. We tell girls or we tell girls things like, oh, he hit you in the playground. He likes you. What kind of conditioning is it to tell young girls that violence in any form, whether it's verbal or physical, is a sign of he likes you. A sign of affection. And then we wonder why women stay in domestic violence situations. Oh, yeah. Why is she still there? Why is she still there? Because you've spent years telling her that just because he's violent does not mean he doesn't love you or that he doesn't value you or he doesn't. So all of that leads to where I get clients, they tend to be miserable, you know, maybe professionally and personally, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you think about, um, most, a lot of women are perfectionists, right? Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time thinking we have to deliver a plus work all the time, but that that protects us,
0: that protects us from criticism or punishment
1: hundred percent. And we are sort of told you can never get it wrong. You can never fail. Actually, you can fail multiple times. Um, And Abby Wambach, who I'm sure the Americans will know, is is an ex-soccer player for the U.S. and, And I will totally get this quote wrong, but I love it. She's like, imperfect men have been allowed to rule the world for years. It's time for imperfect women to allow themselves the opportunity to lead. Perfection is not a prerequisite to leadership, but it, it's not surprising that you believe it is. And that yeah. her message is basically like, you know, if we look at the political scene, how many men do we have ruling countries across the world who have failed at times, who have made mistakes and who have been forgiven and overcome them? But where's the bar for women? What bar do we think that we have to cross the hurdle of before we're allowed to compete?
0: Well, I, I kind of have to think that that's because there's just this subconscious underlying belief that um, she probably can't do this. And as soon as there is mistake, see, see, okay, bring a, bring a guy back in.
1: But that's exactly that men are allowed to be imperfect and it doesn't stop them going after, whether it's CEO of a company, whether it's a president, whether it's a Senator, whatever, but it's like, but women have a higher bar to to hurdle past. And I suppose Mm -hmm. the work I do with women is trying to break down some of this societal conditioning to say, you don't have to be perfect. How much misery is coming in your life from holding the bar up here, not just as an employee, but maybe as a wife, a partner, a mother, a daughter, a sister, or whatever. When the bar is up here, it's unattainable. Perfection is unattainable for anybody. How much time and energy do you waste? An emotional energy, which is exhausting, by the way, beating yourself up because you didn't reach the bar. And what you do is you double down and put all your energy into reaching the bar. But actually my message is the bar is in the wrong place. <laughs> the bar needs to be significantly lower to be realistic. And, you know, when I talk to these women, they tell me what they're achieving in life and I'm blown away. And all they are focusing on is what they're not good enough at. And, you know, my wish for them, and I've said this to a client last week is my wish is that you could start seeing see yourself through the lens that I see you through. And the lens I see you through is you as a Wonder Woman, but the lens you see yourself through is: I only spent two hours with my kids today, not three. I only worked ten hours, not eleven. I got nineteen things on my to-do list done, not twenty. I, you know, and that lens needs to change. We need to start giving ourselves credit. And by the way, a lot of it comes because we compare ourselves to other women,
0: mm-hmm. and we
1: think they have their shit together, and it's us who doesn't. Well, but I actually the media doesn't help single. that.
0: I would love to see what the breakdown is. You know, when it comes to the because we know just recently with the the whole whistleblower thing from uh, Facebook, with Mm -hmm. the um, sorry, I forget the name right off the top of my head, who who had said that Facebook knew that Instagram was actually having a negative impact on the emotions and the and and the the well being of young women. Do guys get the same? You know, like as you say, they're comparing themselves to other women. Oh, she's doing so much more. Do do men have that same
1: phenomenon? I wonder. I think they do. I think, you know, when you you think when imposter syndrome started to be talked about, it was very much a women's thing. And I hate using the word syndrome, by the way, I use imposterism. And the reason being syndrome makes it sound like it's your fault. You've done something wrong, you need to fix yourself. But actually, uh, it was Caroline Caldwell, who's an author in the US who said, you know, we live in a society that profits from your self-doubt. So and, and I do think men are under that, but maybe to not, it doesn't seem quite as blatant. You know, if you think about makeup, I love makeup. I know loads of women who do, but it is sold from the perspective of you will be better if you wear yes. more of this yes. uh, the diet industry worth how many billions a year is all on the basis of women will be better. If they are smaller, you're more important, you're more valuable. Um, you know, when we talk about intersectionality of, of gender, Anybody who is of, of a larger size, there's an extra prejudice. So you get a prejudice as a woman, then throw in that maybe you're of a larger size. You face, say, face a second prejudice. I, right?
0: I mean, bit off topic here, but I think that that is more of a woman thing because, you know, I, I keep telling you how many times I've seen, you know, I mean, women getting ready to go out and, mm-hmm. you know, like fuzz, 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 guys, middle-aged guy, balding, butt belly, yesterday's shirt on perfect.
1: Looks in feel the mirror great. and walks out the door. So I think it that is. is a bit of a difference. Well, and you know, the research shows as well that we don't buy, or we don't behave for pleasure. We actually behave to avoid pain. Right. So if you think, um, I want to go to the gym and I want to, because it's a good workout and I feel good. And it, that's not what motivates most people to go to the, to the gym. It's to avoid the pain. And the pain could be a physical pain. It could be an emotional pain. It could be, I don't want to look like this anymore. And I'll be the first to say, I've never had an eating disorder, but I've spent years and still struggle with disordered eating, that all or nothing approach, right? Because again, for a long time, my health, and I put it in commas journey, was about size and weight. It wasn't really about health. It was under the guise of health, but really it wasn't about health. It was about how you looked, what size you were, how much you weighed. And, you know, thankfully, there's a whole movement now about body positivity and that you can be healthy in multiple different body types. It is not, you know, and you can be very unhealthy in multiple different body types. Being small does not equate to healthy. Mm-hmm. But we as women are constantly bombarded by a women's magazine. I refuse to anymore. Yeah. Um, look at the pictures, look at the adverts. They're never about, you know, you're fabulous as you are. It's always about, yeah, but if you bought this dress or if you looked that way or if you had, I mean, plastic surgery, booming industry, right? And listen, a lot of women, I genuinely believe, do this for themselves. It's not for other people. It's for mm-hmm. how they feel about themselves. Mm-hmm. But something has made them feel not enough. Exactly.
0: You you were not born feeling, I need to go into a knife and pay exorbitant amounts of money to have somebody carve up my face. And they say,
1: young girls, their confidence peaks at nine. After that, it's a downhill, right? Nine years of age is the peak for young girls. Because up until that point, they don't really do the comparison piece, right? They don't really look at their friends. They might to, to a minor extent, but they're not really but that's also the age. A lot of them are starting pre-puberty or, you know, coming into the puberty ages. But it's not strictly
0: bound with puberty. It's not Mm -hmm. like puberty makes you feel self conscious No, no, no. Maybe to a smallest extent, but it's all the conditioning that's suddenly on them to start feeling that way about themselves. So you're looking at, you've got clients coming to you who are, they have that whole thing. Then there's the whole professional mentorship piece as, um, Mm -hmm. I think the numbers I've heard are 75% of professional men or men within industry corporations uh, report having had a mentor where it's only 25% of women can say that because for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, women haven't had that much of a population representation within the industry or corporations for a very long time to have built up this tradition. So people come to, these professional women come to you and you've got to help them not just navigate that corporate path and their career, but also untangle this whole other emotional side of things.
1: Do they come knowing they need this? Yep. No. quite often okay. not. Um, and quite often when somebody comes to me, they, they have a, a problem they want fixed. I have this situation, I need your help. I'm like, it's not that simple, right? I, I'm not the type of career coach who'll sit here and write your resume with you. I will if you need it, but that's not my, my job. And when I say to women, you know, when I do a 12 week program and um, the career activist program and I talk to them and I say the first four weeks is all about you and your mindset before we even talk about the corporate world. A lot of them are like, but why? And I'm like, but we need to understand how you see it. Some of that's going to be serving you well. Some of that's not going to be serving you well. Like if we don't break down your beliefs and figure out the good ones and the not so good ones. If we don't figure out where might you be self-sabotaging today? And self-sabotage sounds like such a horrible word, but you know perfectionism is a form of self-sabotage because that fear of, of not being perfect means I won't do things. I won't try new things because I may not be perfect, but by not trying them, what's that leading to? Or what's that stopping me from going after? It's things like procrastination, right? We all do it. Procrastination is a massive form of self-sabotage, but you know, often when people come to me, they say things like, I want you to stop me feeling like an imposter. And I'm like, well, hold up. The feeling isn't the problem. It's the thought that's the problem because the thought is what led to the feeling. And then the thought was created by the belief system that you have. So if we don't take those multiple steps backwards to figure out where the belief system came from, then how on earth will we ever change the feeling? It's, you know, I think people have this backwards view that the feeling is the problem. It's like, no, 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 we need to understand the belief. So it can be a little bit of struggle to get your mind around the fact that this is part of my coaching. But I believe that that is where you have the aha biggest moments. Because if you can really start to practice not being a perfectionist, by the way, it doesn't just impact your career, it impacts your entire life. If you can quieten, and I never say silence, but quieten that inner critic, imagine what an impact that has on your life. Mm-hmm. If you can figure out where self-sabotage is showing up and, and come up with strategies to overcome it, what's the impact of that on your life? So all of that to me is so critical before we go on to, okay, here's the politics in the corporate world. Let me educate you a little, right? Because I've sat in the promotions committees. Yeah. I know what's talked about. I know what, what's looked at, what traits are looked at, what behaviors. But, I, you know, there's no success by coaching, by the way. This is where coaching differs from training is training is here's the tools. Go do it. Mm -hmm. coaching is no 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 I want you to understand it all so is at the end of our time together you don't need to see me every week we don't become this codependent relationship you don't need to see me every week for the rest of your life can if you want to but you don't have to you actually now have the entire toolkit to go do it on your own and that's different from just here's a training book follow these five paths
0: yeah I mean it totally makes sense you kind of got to unravel some of the emotions and the unexamined beliefs that have underpinned the way you've been operating to date that has been problematic. So actually you removed yourself because you know, when I, when I first heard about your journey and then how this, as I call it, Teresa Fitzgibbon career 1.0 did this big pivot. And now you're doing the coaching and consulting. It was like, Oh my God, we had a, a brilliant, talented, capable woman in the industry who was yeah. plowing a road through there. I mean, you weren't the only woman, but the more 100%. representation there is, and it's like, oh, the industry lost that, but you're actually creating and facilitating, shall, should I say, an army of other, <laughs> traces, I, other yeah, yeah. capable, brilliant 100%. women in finance and yeah. banking that are out there forging new paths and pushing the boundaries and getting more diversity asking, in the whole industry.
1: Asking for what they deserve, right? Because that's the big piece of it, of... Listen, I, you know, you talked about that pivot point later on and I obviously sh- or earlier on, I obviously shared it was a multi-year journey, mm. but there did come a point as well where it was that realization of, oh, I can have more impact outside than I can inside because yeah, inside yeah. I still have my day job. Right. And yes, I was mentoring a lot of, of junior women and I was coaching people and everything, but it was side of the desk at the end of the day after a very busy and all intensive Full on workday because come the end of the year, my performance was going to be judged on my job. So yeah. I felt like, oh, I don't have the capacity to have the impact I want to have. Let yeah. me go external because then my entire job is helping these women. And if I can yeah. help one, and, and the other piece that I always, when I'm vetting clients, and by the way, I vet clients as much as they vet me because we've got to know we can work together and have success together. Mm-hmm. But one of my sort of vetting questions is, are you somebody who's going to pay it forward? When you learn this, are you going to keep it for you and go on your little career ladder and and pull the ladder up behind you? Or are you going to go on your journey to success and pull a load of deserving women and not quota women, deserving women, because they're out there behind you on that journey and with you on that journey? And that's a big difference to me of um, historically, you know, we've had a lot of women succeed, whether it's in politics or other, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily bring others with them.
0: And that's you know, I can in in some ways I can see that there's that there's the whole conditioning, but the also uh, I think there's always the the fear that if, if I do open things up and put more focus on helping women, then I'm going to be accused of being a one agenda politician or mm-hmm. leader and and see what happens. Like you know, yeah. we shouldn't have put her in that position, or she shouldn't we shouldn't have elected her because she only cares about women. It's a kind of a it is, hard but road I think there's
1: another motivator in the corporate world, which is well, if there's only space for 20% of the table to be women, why would I bring a bunch of other women with me? Because maybe I'll they might be on the table anymore. Yes. Exactly. And why so, is there only room for 20? You know, <clears throat> exactly. And it's changing. You know, there, there's a lot of great stuff out there, you know, um, organizations that are focused on getting more women to board tables, for example, or CEOs or like the 30% club. But what I would ask people to do is, is, you know, if you're Not sure if you have an unconscious bias, do a mental flip. Would I say the same thing about somebody of a different race or a different gender or something else? And we'd say the 30% club, and by the way, I'm not calling them out. I think they're doing a fabulous job. But basically what we're saying is I'm okay with 70% of CEOs being men. Yeah, I I, there.
0: I I do the flip too. And like so, if you flipped it and said, like, yeah, I don't think we I think we should have at least 70% women on this board because uh, uh, what's it gonna be if we have any more than 30% men? I mean, men, you know, like isn't 30% enough?
1: Yeah. I mean, that like, sounds well, actually, ridiculous when you do it that way. No, and if you think about the US, you know, graduates are there's more women graduating from university yes. these days than there are men. Yes. So know listen i've been around for 20 odd years in in the industries or or you know corporate world as such the numbers haven't changed dramatically yes we have some great leaders who've maybe changed things in their company um and and listen i've been very lucky to work for some of those banks but the overall industry um and and the the conditioning of oh well women choose to stay at home you know they choose to exit their career and i'm like well That's an easy cop out. My response to you would be what environment did you create that meant they had to choose? What environment are you institutionalizing that I have a choice to be an employee or a mother, but not both? Because you're not creating that environment for men. You're not creating the environment for men that I have to choose between fatherhood and employee. So don't use that as a cop out. Use it as the next time a woman resigns and tells you she needs to spend more time with her family look at what environment you've created that she had to leave her career. That by the way, she probably spent four or five years studying for and 10 plus years working her ass off to get to where she is. Exactly. And now she has to exit that because she's been put in a situation where it's one or the other. I can't have both.
0: But you do that as well. It's not just individual coaching. You also do consulting with companies to help them recognize when issues like this are at the heart of their corporation.
1: Well, you know part of the research now is showing that all the unconscious bias training we've spent the last 10 or 15 years doing has had little to no impact, right? Um, because the whole point is it's unconscious, right? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can sit here and I can go on this training, and go that makes sense, that makes sense. But if I go back to my desk and I change nothing about my behavior and I change nothing about my internal dialogue about bringing awareness, then what impact does it have? And listen, there's people out there who want quotas to force this, and I don't feel the need for quotas, or I don't want quotas because I think what will end up happening is you have a bunch of women who then end up with more imposterism going, am I only in this seat because there was a quota to be in this seat and men uh, treating them in that way.
0: Well, if versus, I could interject, it yeah. worked pretty well in Norway. It was it like, did. what, 25 years ago, 20 years ago when they had raised their quotas and the entire world went, what are they doing? But look where they comfortably are now.
1: And you look at places like Iceland, you know, that have brought in the equal pay. Um, You know, Ireland, we're bringing in in more next year about how it has to be more transparent, right? Organizations above a certain size are now going to have to start saying, what is the pay gap between men and women? Mm -hmm. And listen, often the pay gap, I could go on about the pay gap all day. There's multiple reasons in there, right? Um, People will say, and I think I said, shared with you, you know, I put a post up last year about gender pay gap on Instagram. No woman, by the way, took the time to engage with that but multiple men did and multiple men came back at me and told me why it was women's fault that there was a gender pay gap why it's our own choices our lack of willingness to work as hard as men do multiple other choices so what and, triggered
0: them when it's really I don't know not really their problem they're the ones bad well they from see this, it as their problem though
1: because this is where the insecurities start kicking in right we, we talk when you talk about quotas or when you talk about more women at the table, you get men's insecurities kicked up of, do they oh, think well, they're she's going to put... lose. Yes, they do. And, and I've had this discussion with men and I'm like, well, let me know how it's played out for you so far because I haven't seen a shift. I haven't seen men lose their jobs over women. Um, I haven't seen a negative impact on the representation of men at the table. I still haven't seen that growth, but it is that insecurity piece. And listen, some of it is choice, as in we've just talked about, I choose to leave the industry. But I choose to leave because you forced me to choose, not yep. because I wanted to leave. Uh, there's the other argument that women pick different industries. You know, Women go into what are considered more caring type roles versus maybe into STEM, for example. However, then my argument becomes, well, who decided that nurses who contribute so much to society should be paid so little? Oh, you decide. Oh, OK. So the patriarchy decided that this is the value we're going to give to a job that is predominantly women today. But that value in no way correlates to the contribution to society that that dog makes. Right. So where do we start going back to the patriarchy to look at the fact that, yes, more women are, are maybe going into nursing roles, but somebody someday decided that that was an underpaid industry and you decided it was an underpaid industry because it was predominantly women and not men.
0: And most of them went into it because, well, they were conditioned from childhood to be that nurturer, carer, because that was rewarded behavior. And it's exactly. an accepted industry for you to enter in and you won't be experience any pushback, but like, yes. yeah,
1: and I mean, listen, we, we could go all day, but, um, but I do well, want to ask you, okay. So yeah. all of this
0: and this, this shift into this new coaching and consulting thing resulted in your program that you had mentioned briefly uh, career activists. Well, first of all, activist. Yes. So is that just becoming an activist in your own career?
1: Yes, it is. So my experience is that the majority, and again, big generalization, but the majority of women are career pacifists. What I mean by that is I keep my head down. I work really, really hard. I do, I'm do. i everybody's go-to person. I'm the problem solver. I'm the nurturer on the team. Mm-hmm. But actually, what I'm trying to tell you is that's pacifist behavior. Activist behavior is about realizing that I've got X amount of hours in the day, where can I have the biggest impact? Where can I add the most value? Where can I say no to other people? So as I create time and energy, say yes to my own career.
0: And I would think almost how to say no to other people.
1: How, and, and we talk about that quite a lot, actually, I do with clients because I've been on training programs that learn say no. I mean, that sounds great. But have you ever tried to actually do that with your boss? <laughs> Just say no. So I actually talk through, here's examples of how you can say no without saying no. And things like, I'm, yeah, of course, I'd love to help you with that. I'm available next week because you do want to help, but you need to put your own priorities first and put that person. We tend to be the people pleaser, right? Again, back to this conditioning and nurturing. I'm a people pleaser. I'll, I'll see them right now and I'll push my own stuff to later or I'll cancel the gym tonight or I'll go home late or I'll not meet my friends like I plan to do for dinner tonight. So an activist, though, is somebody who sits down and gets strategic about their career. They actually think about, okay, if I want whatever my goal is, and and your goal can be anything. It could be, I want to stay in my job, but I want a better performance rating. I want a pay rise. I want a new job, a new challenge. Actually getting strategic about what does it take to get there? What are do the steps? Do you help
0: them develop that strategy, their own unique exactly. strategy
1: exactly. for what they're facing? Exactly. So what do you want to achieve? Well, let's figure out what's holding you back. What's setting you up for success? Who do you need to know? Who do you need to be networking with? And you mentioned mentoring, but on top of mentors, do you have a sponsor? Right and sponsors are even more impactful in today's corporate world than mentors. How would you
0: how would you differentiate sponsor from mentor?
1: So, mentor sits down and gives you advice. Right, you come to them with a problem. They're like, "Oh, I've been there. Here's what I did. Here's what I recommend. Have you thought about?" A sponsor is sitting at a table, and when an opportunity is talked about, they're like, "Have you thought about September for that? Have you thought about Trasa for that?" I think this person is ready for an opportunity. So they're actually advocating for you in the moment. A mentor is just giving you advice. They're not up there putting your name in lights. They're not up there Mm -hmm. putting your name out for maybe a successor for somebody else. That's where the big, big difference is.
0: So you're helping them realize they need to be looking for sponsors and mentors.
1: Exactly. It's like the way I I read a fabulous article. I think it was Harvard a couple of months ago. It was like, you need your own board around you, right? So who's your strategist? Who's your, you're the CEO. But who's yeah. your COO? Who's your sponsor? Who's your mentor? Who's your person that you can just go and rant to? Who's your person that helps you with communication? Who's your, per- you know, all of those things. And they're all the things that an activist is thinking about when it comes to their career.
0: Oh, that was just such a rich experience for somebody who's like where you were when you decided <laughs> and I was that there, you were walking way. out of your career.
1: And, and every time I get asked, every mistake I share that women make, I made it multiple times. I banged my head against the brick wall. I got it wrong. I learned the hard way. I suppose my goal is for as many women as possible to learn the easy way. Don't make the mistake for five years. Figure it out sooner than I did. Because there are multiple women like me out there who made the same mistakes. Maybe others didn't, and their their career was much easier to get to where they got to. But don't spend ten years banging your head against a brick wall before you decide to take action. Do something about it. Find somebody. It doesn't have to be me. Find somebody who's in the job you want and get some advice and guidance on how they got there.
0: That is the message I want people to have buzzing around in their head when they finish listening to this. Teresa, thank you so much for talking to me about this. This this, like the issues, but your life journey too and how you have ended up going from the career 1.0 to this new incarnation, Teresa Fitzgibbon coaching.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: This amazing conversation is one woman's efforts to use podcast guest appearances to get her very important message out to the world. Whether it's to build her business, her audience, her credibility, or even rebuild her life, these women know that co-creating amazing interview recordings on other people's podcasts that will be promoted and broadcast from all of the major podcast platforms for years to come is a smart way to be building their brand and getting their message out. Whether it's to grow your speaking career, to get more widely known, or to better position yourself as the authority you really are, strategic podcast guesting is a savvy move. We can help you figure out your best strategy and get you rapidly and effectively launched, leveraging this powerful medium. Contact us at September at OfCoursePro.com or book a complimentary consultation call. The links are in the notes of this podcast. Join the ranks of people making podcast guesting really work for them. Let's get you started. She's